Good morning, everyone. I know. I said welcome to today's Medical Grand Rounds. We're delighted to have Dr. Mark Ekman with us from the University of Cincinnati, and he'll be introduced in just a moment. Dr. Ekman has uh, reported that he has grant and research support from the NIH and the National Center for Advancing Translational Research. He works uh, on several Pfizer medical education groups, and he has uh, support from the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. He'll be introduced to us this morning from James Stahl. He is our Section Chief in General Internal Medicine, Associate Professor of Medicine here, and recently had come to us from the Massachusetts General Hospital, where he was very involved in many projects and decision analysis, and he has embedded himself very avidly in our primary care division, uh, working on the educational arm of that, and again, in many projects around decision. Thank you, James, to tell us about Mark. Thanks, Rich. <coughs> so it's, uh, I have to say, it's a real pleasure to introduce Mark uh, to you all today. Um, so um, I was actually just looking up some of his CV just because there's so much of it that I just want to just pick some of the highlights um, to it. So as a way of introduction, uh, Mark is the... Um, the, uh, the Alice Margaret Posey uh, Endowed Chair Professor at University of Cincinnati uh, in Medicine. And um, he is a former president of the Society for Medical Decision Making, which I, we uh, share a lot of interests. Um, he currently co-directs the uh, Cincinnati Center for Clinical and Translational Science and Training, their CTSA, and uh, has helped lead n numerous training programs over the years. Uh, he is also a fellow of the American College of Medical Informatics, um, and he is leading research. He's currently leading research in the use of uh, electro electronic health records and decision support, quality improvement, and looking at the use of decision analytic models to guide antithrombotic uh, care and guidelines. Uh, he is also a mentor and an award-winning educator, and uh, has published numerous articles in the area of medical decision making and cost-effectiveness analysis. So. It's a very impressive CV, but I would say personally, um, I've known Mark for over 20 years, and Mark was really uh, one of my first teachers and first mentors um, in my first fellowship uh, at Tufts when I was very young and dumb, and I emphasize the second one of that. Um, and that was as well to a two by four. Then. <laughs> That's right. He was very patient with me and very persistent. Um, and that was in the in fellowship of uh, clinical decision making, informatics, and telemedicine. Um, he has been a friend and a mentor for many year, years, and have, has been incredibly thoughtful and patient for me, and has served for me as a, a a model for what it means to be a a great doctor and a great researcher. So, I'm very happy to introduce my friend Mark Ekman. Thank you very much, Jamie. Uh, maybe I should just leave after that. I don't think it could get better. <laughs> you embarrassed me. Thank you so much. What I'm going to share with you this morning is work that we've been doing to develop decision support tools and to study the impact of those, looking at the issue of antithrombotic therapy or thromboprophylaxis for patients with atrial fibrillation. And again, um, you, you heard a bit about disclosures. This is a large. Uh, interprofessional multidisciplinary team. We have stroke neurologists, cardiologists, health IT folks, 
English majors who do qualitative studies, um, a large team, and that's really been important to the success of this project. So just touching on a few epidemiologic points as background, folks know that the prevalence of AF increases with age, uh, and the number of Americans in our population due to baby boomers like myself were growing older and older, so the numbers of patients with AF are increasing, and it's expected to reach uh, almost 55 million by the year 2020 in terms of prevalent AF. And this is just a diagram showing that <clears throat> from the perspective of percent prevalence, that uh, two to three percent of folks in their 60s have AF, slightly lower percentages in women. And by the time you get to the decade of the 80s, eight to 10 percent of individuals have AF. And again, this is just projecting out total numbers, uh, as I said before, by the year 2050, uh, over five and a half million. So it's a growing problem. I'll just mention, so as Jamie was saying, uh, <laughs> people might recognize this. We, used, we lived in Boston for quite a while, and uh, every summer we'd come out to the Whites, the Presidentials, and backpack, and we still do that from Cincinnati, so I can't help but throw some pictures in. So let's talk for a moment about underutilization and the flip side of that, inappropriate utilization of thromboprophylaxis. Numerous randomized trials have proven the efficacy of warfarin in the past, more recently of the novel oral anticoagulant agents. But there's still documented widespread underutilization. And uh, in a meta-analysis that, uh, I'll get to that in a moment, but uh, reasons for that, and this is not a complete list, but include misperceptions about the net clinical benefit. What I mean by that is if you look at on the risk side, the bleeding and the consequences, and on the stroke prevention side, the benefit, the kind of resulting net impact uh, is hard to, 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 to quantitate sometimes. Lack of time uh, as general internists with our 10-minute appointments trying to go through this in a thoughtful manner and engage patients is difficult. Guidelines are complex and confusing. Sometimes they say different things. Uh, lack of decision support at the point of care, again, just to mention a few. Um, we actually did, this is something, uh, as, as James knows, I've been interested in for the last 25 years or so. Um, shortly after getting to Cincinnati, we had the opportunity to use the statewide Medicaid database to try to look at uh, some of these issues. And we found that in an Ohio Medicaid population, simply looking not at who should and who shouldn't, but just total numbers, only about uh, not quite 10% of patients were receiving oral anticoagulant therapy who had diagnoses of uh, non-valvular AF, uh, atrial fibrillation or flutter. And if we removed patients with obvious contraindications, it still only jacked it up to about 12%. Um, back at that time, we, we had developed a decision analytic model that was the kind of precursor of what we've been using in the decision support tool I'm going to describe to you later. And basically, uh, as the, the model today does, it incorporates at the patient level patient prediction of stroke risk, AF-related stroke risk, patient prediction of bleeding risk, and calculates outcomes for patients using quality-adjusted life years uh, as uh, the metric and uh, looking at uh, basically for any given patient the quality-adjusted life year that could be expected with or without oral anticoagulant therapy. And um, when we did that, we found that in this Ohio Medicaid cohort, there were about um, 3,000 patients in all, uh, rather 3,000 patients for whom warfarin was recommended, not quite 50%, but only close to 10% were actually receiving it. So this is, if you will, a, a kind of an adjusted analysis looking at 
a, 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 a denominator of patients who should be receiving, and again, only a very small percentage. We also found that, without getting into all the numbers, but that in general, women uh, were had an even lower rate of getting appropriate thromboprophylaxis. Um, bottom line was women were almost two and a half times less likely to receive uh, appropriate anticoagulant therapy. As I was mentioning before, Ogilvy published uh, just a few years ago a uh, systematic review and found in more than 54 articles uh, documentation of under-treatment. And even when looking at high-risk groups, patients who had had AF-related strokes or TIAs, still the proportion receiving thromboprophylaxis was just barely approaching 60%. I'm just going to share with you a little bit of kind of a snapshot now of the numbers in our own primary care network at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, we're an EPIC uh, uh, site now for about uh, three years, and so we've had the ability, as many institutions have, to use that as a data source as well as a way to push decision support out. And basically, we were looking for patients in our network who, again, had atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter, We've had to now switch everything to ICD-10. I'm sure you guys have gone through that lovely process as well. Uh, and we've excluded patients with either valve replacement or valvular heart disease. Then we wanted, and we had about 9,200 such patients in the system. Um, we wanted to see then who had had an active visit in the last 12 months, and that reduced the numbers to about 4,000. And then for this project and some of the data that I'm going to present to you, we were particularly interested in patients who were having their anticoagulation managed in the primary care network. And so uh, that brought the number down to just a little over 1,700. So that's the cohort who I'm going to be talking about for the next few minutes. And again, I know the practice names don't mean anything to you, but the point of this slide, it's just the distribution of the numbers of patients across the primary care practices at the time. The point is that some practices had a lot of patients and were dealing with this and were comfortable with decision-making about thromboprophylaxis, and other practices had uh, merely a handful of such patients. And that was an interesting issue when we actually went out and talked to the docs and the practices. I'll get to that later. Um, just, again, as a snapshot, looking at not whether it's appropriate or inappropriate, but what proportion of these patients were receiving various forms of thromboprophylaxis. 47% were receiving warfarin. Uh, we'd not yet had, this data is now about a year and a half old, um, not yet had a lot of penetration of the novel agents. Um, and uh, you can see that in total, 56% of patients were receiving some form of oral anticoagulant therapy. Interestingly, a very large proportion, 35%, were receiving aspirin as their sole form of thromboprophylaxis. There are further interesting stories about dual and triple uh, therapy issues, and that, that's a talk for another day. Um, risk stratification for stroke. So let's just talk about the instruments that are out there. Um, folks, I think, are very familiar with CHADS, and uh, CHADS has been around for a little while. Brian Gage at WashU developed this on a Medicare population. Each letter stands for a different risk factor, uh, congestive heart failure, hypertension, age 75 or older, diabetes, stroke or prior TIA. And then here are the various uh, annual AF-related stroke risks associated with each CHADS score, and you can see it runs even from with a CHAD score of zero, 1.9% is not a trivial stroke rate. Um, and one of the things I'll get to is the problem with CHADS is it doesn't really dissect out uh, well patients at low stroke risk. And in fact, the questions these days, 
are not so much who should get thromboprophylaxis, but who shouldn't, and really being able to better dissect those very low-risk patients. Um, so Chad's VASC came along. We kind of talk about Chad's VASC as uh, kind of Chad's on steroids. It's basically the same risk factors with a few things added. One is age doesn't magically, risk for stroke doesn't magically go up like this at age 75. It's a more continuous process. So Chad's VASC divides that into two strata of age, uh, greater than or equal to 65 and then over 75. Chad's VASC also adds uh, female gender as a risk factor for stroke and uh, AF-related stroke and vascular disease. Um, this was an interesting issue for us. I was actually part of the ACCP, the, the CHEST guidelines, and we debated quite a while in 2012 when 189 came out whether to use Chad's VASC, which was just very new on the scene or not. And we, we opted not to because at that time, at least, we were concerned most uh, clinicians in North America would not be familiar with Chad's VASC, uh, with Chad's, excuse me. But uh, the most recent update of the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, Heart Rhythm Society guidelines from last year have now started using Chad's VASC. But the Europeans were a little bit ahead of uh, us, and uh, Chad's VASC actually was first developed on the Euro Heart Survey study. And you can see here, what I want to draw your attention to is that at the low end of the scale, so a Chad's VASC of zero uh, corresponds with a very low risk of stroke, Chad's VASC of one, 1.3%, et cetera. So again, there's a little better discrimination or granularity at the low risk end of the scale. And just highlighting that, this is just a table looking at, from one study, um, a population of patients with a CHADS score of one, and then looking at the distribution of CHADS VAST scores amongst those patients. And you can see that only a quarter, roughly, have a CHADS VASC of one. And you can see that even uh, some smaller numbers, 42, 29% have CHADS VASCs of two and three. <clears throat> Let's talk a little bit now about risk stratification for bleeding. There are many tools that are out there. The Outpatient Bleeding Risk Index that Seth Landefeld described about 30 years ago now, hemorrhages, uh, atria, has bled. We're just going to talk about has bled this morning. Um, and that's basically, again, uh, an acronym. Every letter stands for a different risk factor. H is hypertension. And interestingly, as opposed to in Chad's VASC, where hypertension is just a diagnosis of hypertension regardless of how well treated it is. In Hasblood, it's actually defined by, it's, it means poorly controlled hypertension, meaning a systolic pressure over 160. So actually, it's amenable to uh, decreasing a Hasblood if you can get blood pressure under better control. A is abnormal renal or liver function, S, stroke history, bleeding, uh, labile INRs, so again, the uh, developmental Studies in the EuroHeart survey included some patients who were taking warfarin. Um, elderly, uh, doesn't sound so elderly to me anymore, but, and then drugs are not drugs of abuse. Uh, it means antiplatelet drugs or alcohol. And you can see here the corresponding annual risk of uh, major bleeding. The HASBLED again was first validated on the EuroHeart survey, and it also has been referenced. Uh, by the most recent European and Canadian guidelines. And as I've mentioned before, some of the risk factors are, in fact, are amenable to intervention on our part. So the clinical conundrum, though, is that stroke risk and bleeding risk are highly correlated. As you've seen in both Chad's VASC and Hasbled, many of the risk factors are the same. And if you actually look 
at studies, uh, and there have been many published that have looked at uh, at the has bled at the correlation basically between stroke and bleeding risk, and they're tightly intertwined. So that makes decisions all the more difficult because frequently we find ourselves crawling along the edge of the razor blade where as stroke risk is going up and we think, well, this patient should be anticoagulated, bleeding risk is going up as well. Um, let me now, sorry for all the quick turns, and, and uh, but, but let's talk a little bit about the current guidelines. So just uh, very quickly, the ninth ACCP consensus conference basically for a CHAD score of zero remembering even that's almost 2% per year stroke risk, basically said uh, with a, a grade 2B recommendation that uh, no treatment was reasonable, but for those, for patients who are very concerned about stroke, that one might consider aspirin. CHADs of 1 or higher, basically antithrombotic therapy was recommended, but with a stronger grade of evidence for the higher CHAD scores. And then kind of looking forward to what the risk factors in CHADs VASC were, there were commentaries that over and above the CHAD score, one might consider other factors such as female gender, vascular disease, et cetera. Uh, and of course, uh, patient preferences and values, which is very important in all of this. Summarizing the ACC AHA guideline uh, into one table, basically uh, what it says is for a CHADS VASC of zero, those are really patients at almost uh, no, no risk of stroke, that it's reasonable to omit thromboprophylaxis for patients with uh, CHADS VASC greater than or equal to 2, uh, again, oral anticoagulant therapy with any warfarin or any of the novel agents is recommended. And then kind of for a CHADS VASC of 1, not strong evidence one way or another. Basically, they said anything pretty much is reasonable. So if one thinks uh, conceptually of the decision-making process for these patients, at the top left, this is sort of a spectrum, if you will, of decision-making. Patients who are at low risk of stroke at high risk of bleeding, it's pretty clear they shouldn't receive thromboprophylaxis. At the top right, patients who are at high risk of stroke and low risk of bleeding, it's again a no-brainer. These are patients who should be anticoagulated. But we've got many patients here in the middle, as I uh, mentioned before, who have both uh, uh, modest uh, bleeding and stroke risks, and what do we do for them? So one of the challenges is, as you've seen in both the ACCP and the AHA-ACC guidelines, the guidelines um, are really basically uh, based on stroke risk in terms of uh, the recommendations. And of course, they say one needs to take bleeding risk into account, but they don't really provide a quantitative method to incorporate that. Um, and so we've tried to address this uh, again with, uh, from a decision analytic perspective. And um, the decision support tool that we're using now uh, in 2015 basically has a decision analytic model as its calculational engine. And again, it explicitly accounts for, at the patient level, bleeding risk. Now we have new tools using the HasBled. Uh, formally addresses the balance of risk and benefit but for, in terms of uh, stroke prevention. And as I mentioned before, uh, basically makes an individualized projection of quality-adjusted life expectancy. <clears throat> I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. How, how many folks are a little bit familiar with decision analysis? Okay. Um, so, so basically, the decision model just is looking at these three strategies, oral anticoagulant therapy, aspirin, no thromboprophylaxis. This is a cartoonized picture of it's a Markov model, actually 29 health states. 
And the basic idea of a Markov model is that patients are in different health states. They might start, for instance, in well on oral anticoagulant therapy. And then in each month, with a, the tick of a hypothetical one-month clock, depending on events that occur during that month, they redistribute to other health states. And those events that might occur are thromboembolic events, basically uh, AF-related strokes from which patients may die, have permanent morbidity, so permanent neurologic sequelae that are either severe or mild, or resolution, such as in a TIA, or no such event in that month. And then there may be bleeding events as well, and we've divided those into intracranial bleeding events and extracranial bleeding events. And, uh, and then finally, we have death from other causes that are not modeled in the decision model explicitly using life tables, basically. Um, so I'm not going it, to, it, it's a complicated process. Anyone who's tried to pull information out of the electronic health record or out of, you, you guys are an epic institution, right? Out of clarity on the back end, it's painful. Lots of detail. Uh, I'll just summarize it by saying that to pull the information out that we needed to calculate, uh, basically to run the decision support tool. So to calculate the CHADS fast, the HASBLED, we actually also have a separate model predicting intracranial hemorrhage. Excuse me. Um, we used a combination of diagnosis codes for, from the active problem list, as well as uh, laboratory values. And I'll suffice it to say. So let me just give you a few examples. So these are actually real patients run through the decision model. So there are 18 clinical characteristics that we use to inform the model, and we infer and pull that information out of uh, EPIC. And so here's an example of a patient who's a 62-year-old male with no other risk factors for either bleeding or stroke. He has a CHADS-VASC of zero, corresponding to 0% per year AF-related stroke risk, a HASBLED of zero, and an annual rate of intracerebral hemorrhage on anticoagulant therapy of 0.17% per year. For this patient, um, no treatment actually wins with 19.6 uh, quality-adjusted life years. A big difference, uh, aspirin and, and no treatment are, unfortunately, that yellow is not coming out too well, but there's a trivial difference between these. Uh, but a big difference in terms of uh, if this patient were treated with warfarin, he would have lost uh, almost two-thirds of a quality-adjusted life year compared to no treatment. Now let's look at that's... Uh, a 65-year-old woman with hypertension, she has a CHADS-VASC of 3, corresponding to a 3.2% per year stroke risk. You can see the other numbers here. And for this patient, warfarin uh, wins strongly. And you can see there's a gain of almost a full quality-adjusted life year compared to aspirin. And aspirin uh, has a gain of uh, a little more than a third of a quality-adjusted life year compared to no treatment. Now let's look at an older gentleman, 82-year-old male with hypertension, poorly controlled hypertension at that, abnormal renal function, the kind of patients we see every day, with a CHADS-VASC of 3, a HASBLED of 3. You can see the annual rate of ICH is going up. Male gender and age are risk factors for ICH. And for this patient, you can see that warfarin is still being recommended, although the gain compared to aspirin is small, and there's just a little bit more than... Uh, uh, 0.15 qualities compared to no treatment. So again, the strength of that decision is getting a little a little weaker, as and that corresponds to our clinical angst over situations like this. If we now take that same patient and also give him a history of bleeding and a labile INR, has bleds popped up to five, ICH rate is very high, 
And uh, for this patient now, no treatment uh, is the winning um, strategy. So that's just a little bit of a sampling. Now, moving to the system level, I want to tell you a little bit about how we've tried to integrate this and, and actually do a study within our own health network. So I've described all these steps already in terms of pulling the information out. What we actually did was a cluster randomized trial then. We developed a secure website that uh, essentially allows the use of this tool. Um, and we emailed physicians who were in practices that were randomized to the intervention group if they had patients who, uh, whose current treatment was discordant from that recommended by the decision support tool. And then we had a delayed intervention group, which we actually just rolled out a couple of months ago. And the, the bottom line was we, we had both knowledge surveys, but the more important outcome was looking at, if you will, appropriate thromboprophylaxis. And the hypothesis uh, was that in the early intervention group, the physicians or uh, the patients of the physicians provided with the tool, mm -hmm. we hypothesized would, uh, over a one-year period, have an improvement in thromboprophylaxis. Uh, we're still waiting for all the results on that, and during the Q&A part, we can talk about at least some preliminary things if folks have questions. This is not displaying very well, but this is what it looks like when the physician logs into the website. Uh, they have a list of all of their patients and, and uh, who have discordant therapy. If they're interested to see uh, the decision support tool recommendation for patients who aren't discordant, they can click on this and get a full list. One of the challenges was we had some docs, uh, in, you may remember one practice had almost 400 patients with AF. We had some docs who had 40, 50 patients with discordant treatment, and it was a bit overwhelming to get hit with that all at once. What we would do then is give them uh, a sheet where they, we would confirm the information that we pulled out of EPIC. Um, as we've discovered, it's not 100% accurate. Probably more our fault as clinicians and what we chart or don't remove when things change. But uh, on the left, we have marked off with a check everything that we believe to be true from EPIC in terms of those 18 clinical uh, pieces of information and also bolded. And they can click in any of these boxes to either add new ones or remove. And if everything's fine, they just click on save and they'll get a report. Again, this just uh, basically now confirms. Uh, so here we have a 59-year-old female with congestive heart failure, diabetes, hypertension, taking antiplatelet drugs. If the doc clicks now on generate worksheet, then a report like this comes up. It's a two-page report. Um, the top page is a static page that has a, re a recapitulation of the CHADS, the CHADS VASC, and the HASBLED, along with the patient and physician name, which we've obfuscated here. Um, and, and the reason for that is actually part of the performance improvement piece of the project was that the practice managers in each of the practices um, were instructed that when these were available, they should print them up and keep them in a tickler file. And then I'll tell you a little bit more about how we integrated that. The next page of the report where the action is um, basically uh, would show that, the, again, I don't have it in here, but the patient name, gender, age, medical record number, the physician, current treatment, in this uh, case, rivaroxaban. Again, this is a real patient. Uh, highlighted here, again, those are the 18 clinical factors. So this is, uh, she has hypertension, a history of bleeding, female gender. Chad's VASC of three with the corresponding AF-related stroke rate, has bled of two. We provided the CHAD score again because our docs were kind of in transition, being a little more comfortable with CHADs. Uh, and then the ACA, uh, ICH rate. And then um, 
whatever the winning strategy is, we put in the middle, bold it, and put it in red, so it was very obvious. So for this patient, oral anticoagulant therapy uh, was the recommended strategy with a gain of uh, almost half a quality adjusted life year compared to no treatment, a gain of about a third of a quality compared to aspirin. And then on the top right, we had a, a table basically that showed them the ACC AHA guideline and would dynamically highlight, it's hard to see here, but uh, th this is highlighted in a, in a blue uh, transparent covering. We would highlight the uh, recommendation that was relevant to that patient based on their CHADS-VAS score. So they had all of that information in front of them. And then we had our study coordinator going out to every practice site, and we had uh, large laminated run charts, and we're giving them information about how they're doing. The top lines are uh, of patients for whom thromboprophylaxis is recommended by the decision support tool, what proportion are getting it. So we would hope these will be going up. Uh, the bottom one is of patients for whom thromboprophylaxis is not recommended, so neither aspirin nor uh, oral anticoagulant therapy, what proportion are getting it, and one would hope this would be going down. So let me share with you some population level results. Uh, again, a snapshot at this point from about not quite a year ago. Um, this is the distribution of CHADS-VAS scores across our primary care network, those 1,800 patients. And compared to, we, we don't have a lot of uh, contemporary studies using CHADS-VASC, but the Atria cohort, uh, Kaiser Permanente, Northern California, has uh, information, uh, scads of information published uh, about uh, the, the, all sorts of things in their AF population. And they're, just to look at the CHADS score, their mean CHADS score in their population is not quite two. And again, you can see we've got a little bit of a tail over here. Ours is about 2.2. So our population, we, we're a safety net uh, provider. Certainly the university hospital is, as I suspect uh, Dartmouth is as well. And uh, we've got a, a population with a lot of comorbidities that actually uh, are correlated with both uh, higher AF-related stroke risk. And as you can see here, uh, the mean has bled scores about 2.7. This is just a distribution of ICH rates. But here's, this is the table I want to talk about the most. So we wanted to look at the population level, what was the potential net benefit we could have, we could gain, what, what's, how much low-hanging fruit is, is there in essence, uh, if we were doing things better. And so uh, to orient you to this table, the top row is oral anticoagulant therapy being recommended by the decision support tool, and then looking at what is actually current treatment. So for instance, there were 188 patients for whom the decision support tool recommended oral anticoagulant therapy who were not getting anything, neither aspirin nor oral anticoagulant therapy. We used a threshold to uh, basically, for if you will, clinically significant difference being greater than or equal to a tenth of a quality adjusted life year. So we made no recommendations if current therapy and recommended therapy had a difference that was too small. So there were 179 patients who would gain a tenth of a quality or more. And for those patients, the average gain per patient was not quite 1.2 quality adjusted life years. For that group of 179 patients in aggregate, a little over 209 quality adjusted life years. And in a similar way, looking at patients for whom aspirin was recommended, what were they actually getting, what was the potential gain. Bottom line, going to the bottom here is that in our Co in our primary care AF population, there were 
a bit over 800 patients for whom perhaps we could have been doing something better. And for that group of patients in aggregate, uh, more than 700 quality adjusted life years could be gained. So this is another way to kind of look at a population level at uh, clinical net benefit. Danny Singer published something in the annals about seven or eight years ago looking at atria using a somewhat different methodology, but, but sort of trying to accomplish similar things. Um, and this is just uh, the, the only point here is we also looked at if we use the ACC AHA guideline and compared how we might do relative to guideline recommendation instead of relative to decision support tool, you can still see that um, about 630 qualities. Interestingly, as I'll show you in this next slide, so this is just looking at the comparison between what our decision support tool recommends and what the guidelines recommend. And you can see that, uh, so for a CHADS VASC of two or greater, the guideline, again, irrespective of bleeding risk, recommends oral anticoagulant therapy. Our decision support tool for those same patients in our cohort recommended oral anticoagulant therapy for 1,500 patients, recommended aspirin for a, a small number, 41, and no therapy even for patients with a CHADS vas greater than or equal to 2 for 65. The reason being, of course, these are patients who are at higher risk of bleeding. Uh, and again, the guideline not really quantitatively taking that into account. Um, you can see, uh, I'll just focus on the bottom one now, in terms of making recommendations for who should not be receiving thromboprophylaxis, we're pretty much right on uh, with the guideline. And um, I think that may actually be my last slide, but I wanted to leave lots of time for talk and questions. And uh, I, I'd be happy to talk more, too. I, I, I don't have slides presented. The results of the study that I was describing to you were just actually uh, mulling through. Uh, but again, I, I'd be happy to talk about that a little bit, too. So thank you. be a lot of questions. Let me start by asking you how this may be used with the patients as well. Yes, yes. So how, how do they react to this decision too? So we have a whole, the, obviously the stakeholder in the project I'm describing to you is the physician. The physician's getting the information and then doing whatever they do with it in terms of interacting with the patient. We have a whole other line of work that we're doing uh, where we're really focusing on the patient as the stakeholder and trying to um, really facilitate a shared decision-making interaction. And um, what we're doing there is in the same manner as we've pulled information here on the risk factor side, the clinical side, to match stroke risk and bleeding risk to the patient. In the other work that we're doing, we're also trying to elicit uh, patient values and preferences, or what we call utilities, uh, from the patients themselves for the major outcomes of importance. So uh, uh, bleeding, uh, AF-related stroke, and then pulling all of that information and engaging the patient, using the opportunity uh, of doing utility assessment to also really explain to patients, well, what are the risks associated with AF? Uh, what are the risks associated with treatment? Um, so that, again, it gives an opportunity to engage the patient there and then provide them. Uh, at the moment, uh, we've, we've done some work where we have paper booklets that we've developed for patients that are patient-specific, and we've done some pilot projects with that. Um, we, what, where we would like to go is actually have a, a, essentially a fully computerized tool 
Uh, and one of the things we're working on in our health system right now is developing, taking our old Coumadin clinic, which is run by our clinical pharmacists in conjunction with uh, medicine, and, and really uh, evolving that into an AF thromboprophylaxis service where uh, that can be a venue to where, where we're uh, trying to do the kind of work that I'm talking about. We actually have some grants that we're trying to get funding to look at that. So that's the vision for um, where things are going. And uh, you know, I think in, in the, the new world of all of these confusing novel oral anticoagulants that are out there as well, uh, where even, and I can tell you as general internists, we're struggling trying to figure out uh, who's most appropriate and how to use these and who should stay on warfarin, et cetera. Uh, but to have that kind of decision support um, at, uh, with people who deal with the, these patients all the time, so our clinical pharmacists working and, and having the time as opposed to the 10 minutes we have in our office visits to try to really make that a shared decision-making interaction. Kathy? Um, you have 18 Go ahead, please. Areas, which is, uh, you know, quite a lot. And I just wondered if you did any sensitivity analysis to see if you could drop any of those and still have a good model. I, I missed the very first part of I just wondered if you could drop any of the variables, if you did any oh. Yeah, so, well, let, let me ask you, um, what what do you see as the benefit of dropping some of those variables? Well, just that, you know, the complexity would be less, and also, you know, sometimes the more variables you have, the sort of less robust your mm -hmm. uh, model can be, depending on, you know, how correlated they are or things like that. So we didn't look at that primarily because what, again, the risk prediction tools that we're using are the already developed and validated Chads, Vask, and Hasblad. So that's driving the majority of what we need uh, in the model. And I guess the other thing I would say, although you're absolutely right that, the, you know, the more information you try to pull, the more subject to error you may be. Um, but uh, the fact that we, in an automated manner, are pulling that information out um, to some extent makes it a, a little more transparent to the clinician in terms of, you know, we're not asking docs to fill out 18 different clinical variables on each patient, although certainly the tool could be used in that fashion. I'm interested in Wally. Yes. And um, how, it, whether you could tell us more about how you would explain what a point one yeah. difference in a is to a patient. Yeah. It, it, it's challenging, so uh, even to explain that to our clinicians. So um, what we've, at least in terms of the physicians, um, we actually had uh, two noontime conferences where myself, several other generalists, the stroke uh, docs and the cardiologists went out to the practices and we, we talked a little bit about this. And, you know, from, and part of what we explained was uh, from a decision analytic perspective, uh, you know, what that meant. And, and typically, a, a tenth of a quality, you know, there's uncertainty in the models. There's, uh, you know, variance around uh, estimates of parameters, et cetera. And, uh, and when you don't have uh, specific preferences from individual patients, uh, what I want to get to is explain what we actually did with this model about the preference information. <clears throat> there may be variation. So, um, Way back uh, in uh, the early 80s, Jerry Kassir, who had been uh, uh, with us at Tufts and then uh, editor of the New England Journal, wrote a seminal piece on the toss-up and kind of defined, if you will, uh, a, a 0.1 quality-adjusted life year threshold as, you know, what's too close to call uh, and use that as the definition. So that's sort of 
um, <clears throat> at least quantitatively, what we've used. Getting to part of the point of your question, too, so what does this all mean? So we try to explain to patients with some of the work that I described to you with the, um, the patient engagement pieces uh, that, number one, you know, we're giving you information. First, think about just life expectancy. And we're telling you um, these are the life expectancies that you might have with strategy A, strategy B, strategy C. And, and then, uh, again, in, in the, not the information I presented today, but the project that I was describing in the last question, um, we get their values and preferences for the health state. So we'll, for instance, explain if they would indicate to us that for them, a stroke with moderate neurologic sequelae has a quality of life of 0.7, for instance, on a zero to one scale, that for them, then every year that they would live in that state of health uh, would be 0.7 of a quality adjusted life year. And in trying to explain things in that manner to patients, I think they get some sort of a sense of it. James may remember this, but also uh, what, what the beginning of all this work actually was when I was at Tufts, we had a decision-making consultation service. So we would actually do consults de novo um, and sit down with patients and, and, and do this. We'd have the decision tree in front of us. We'd uh, you know, use it as a vehicle to talk about uh, the events that we were concerned about that they needed to consider to get their values and preferences and then to try to really, you know, by integrating them into the process. So it wasn't just a black box, but they understood a little bit about what we were doing. I mean, my experience at least was that most patients had a gestalt of what we were talking about. Um, it, is, it is complicated and there's no question about it. I'm not minimizing that, but uh, we've generally found it, at least with patients, not to be a significant issue. I found in some cases with clinicians, sometimes it's a little more of an issue. I guess just to follow up, mm -hmm. I'm just trying to think, looking at like 13.6 versus 13.5. Right. right. Quality adjusted life years. So it seems, I'm just trying to think as I sit down with a patient to say, well, yeah. agreeing to take this medication every day for the rest of your life, you can expect right. what? So I guess the, the way I would, the way I would, talk about that with the patient is, number one, again, if we actually have incorporated their values and preferences, we'd also have information accounting for the hassle factor relating to taking the medication. So for instance, in the, in the non, in the model where we use population level values, so the decision support tool that I've described to you this morning where we've really had the doc as the stakeholder, we use population average values for the utilities. And in, in uh, we use a 0.99 for treatment with warfarin, which has been empirically uh, noted in studies of patients. And that's equivalent to essentially patients being willing to take up to a 1% risk of being dead to avoid having to take warfarin every day, come in, get their INRs every two weeks to a month, et cetera. So there's the capacity to build that into the models in the kind of interactions that we're describing where we'd actually assess patient values and preferences for that individual patient. We, we actually also, that would be one of the things that we would uh, get. And, and again, it may be different, for instance, for the novel oral anticoagulants compared to warfarin, but that would be information that we'd gather in. And, and you know, from a philosophical perspective, I guess the way I'd answer your question would be that if you've accounted for all of those things, if you've already accounted for, you're asking me to take this every day, doc, I need to make sure not to miss a dose, I need to go in and get my blood tested, um, if that's all been accounted for in the model, then even a small difference 
is is something. Now, you know what the way we pose it is that the larger the gain, the stronger the recommendation. And actually, what we're one of the things we're doing now, we, we've gotten a lot of criticisms, complaints from our docs about why are you making me go to this separate web, website? You know, I've got my patient information in Epic. You're making me go to this separate web, website. So we're actually working now on integrating this as a button in Epic that will automatically in real time pull the information. And, um, in, and, and we're trying to take the opportunity to redesign some of the, the screens and the uh, interactions. And, and one of the, we've gotten good feedback in focus groups with docs is precisely addressing what you're talking about. I'm sorry I didn't bring a picture, but basically um, a, a bar with zero in the middle, uh, green on the top, red on the bottom, and basically just an arrow showing for oral anticoagulant therapy, you know, how strong a recommendation. The units on the bar are actually qualies on an exponential scale, log scale, so there's more difference in the smaller numbers. And so, again, in a very intuitive gut kind of, you know, just looking at it manner, you can see, well, how far is that arrow from the zero line? And we actually have a little yellow area in the middle that's the plus minus 0.1 quality that's kind of the uncertain region. So, again, we're, we're trying to address this question and make it a little more intuitively uh, obvious in a quick manner so that people don't need to sit there. I, I would add one, one thing. Mm -hmm. so, one of the, you know, so one of the beauties of decision analysis is this is what, you know, Steve mm -hmm. used to say all Beauty of decision analysis. The terrible thing about decision analysis is everything is <laughs> And so when you confront it with your questions and really kind of pulling out of people, and even and then even at the end of the day, if you if you've extracted everything that everybody cares about, even if there's even if one decision is just a little bit better, it's the decision that they really prefer, even if it's another gigantic. But it is, you know, not if you look at me being as exclusive. We're going to go to John Ellis and then over here. John Lurk. Oh, I just, so I think that's, you know, what Tim said is right. You know, once you, if we make everything explicit, where very small differences sort of matter. But I'm wondering to what extent you're able to look at the uncertainties in the transition probability mm -hmm. and utility estimates and how how far yeah. the, the end estimates actually vary in terms of what's really not meaningful in a, in a clinical percentage, but in a, in a statistical sense, yeah. So, so we've also um, done lots of modeling with these models using what's called uh, second-order Monte Carlo modeling, where instead of having fixed numbers for the probabilities and rates, et cetera, you ha actually use the distributions and their standard errors. And um, so we've, you know, what, what we've not done at the individual patient level, but at a population level, we've looked at then the distribution of gain or loss uh, stratified by different um, groups of patients. We've actually, as part of some of the calibration and validation of the model, um, we've, we've used that kind of a process uh, to look at if you stratify patients by different CHADS-VAS scores, um, you know, what, what does the distribution of gain or loss look like? And, um, and we've also tried to look at, uh, uh, in a similar manner, using data from that we didn't use to build the model, how well can our model predict from a, from a distributional sense 
um, stroke, AF-related stroke rate and, uh, and bleeding rate in another population. We used the Atria cohort, and it predicted very well compared to. So we've, we've tried to account for that. I think an interesting question is, and, and some of the folks in our group have, some of the docs have said, well, why can't we present probabilistic information, in other words, distributions of gain or loss at the patient level? And um, mathematically, we could do that. Uh, the, the concern, sort of the rebutting argument is, however difficult this is already, just with point uh, values that, we, you know, even the physicians would just be completely overwhelmed by that. So we've not taken that step, although it's technically doable. You know, do you have any uh, cost information, cost effectiveness, taking into account the cost of drugs, the cost of yeah. and so on and so forth, versus... Uh, yeah. Yeah. So we've we've so that's one of the other things I do a lot of. Um, we've done studies in the past looking at cost effectiveness, uh, and again, depending on uh, level of stroke and bleeding risk, um, certainly warfarin has been quite cost effective. Uh, there are numerous studies out there. We've we've not done them, but uh, that have started looking at cost effectiveness for the novel oral anticoagulants and warfarin stratified by different stroke risk groups. And again, it, it, it gets complicated because you need to look at it by strata of stroke risk. But in general, sort of the the takeaway has been that uh, the novel agents, as well, to one degree or another, are also very cost effective. And obviously, it, more so in higher stroke risk patients, but. Dan, uh, just a comment and a question, Mark. Yeah. Very nice. Uh, Thanks. Good to see you. Empirical decision making. Um, so, um, the comment is that the uh, those little diagrams of all the little people on them, um, hundred little people, Diconographs, are sometimes yeah. very useful for um, explaining this to people who are not that sophisticated. The question is, did did any of your docs argue with you about the possibility that compliance, for example, would alter the results. Mm. Yeah. That might be a variable which would be sensitive to this. Uh, yeah. Now. No, great question. So we actually, there, there's a qualitative piece to our study, and uh, uh, one of our collaborators in the Department of English went around and specifically was interviewing physicians who had a number of patients who used the tool but didn't, um, you know, follow up on the recommendations. And we, so the logical question was, why not? And uh, lots of interesting issues came up. Uh, and again, coming from the perspective that it's a decision support tool, not a decision replacement tool. And, you know, one of the things was, well, this patient's just, you know, not compliant. I'm worried about them, uh, you know, taking warfarin. Frankly, adherence is even a bigger issue with the novel agents because the half-lives are so short. Um, how you would actually take that into account in a model, I mean, it's an interesting question. You know, the, the, the knee-jerk response would be that probably efficacy would be lower in a lower adherent group. But, you know, I don't know, and I'd love to talk to you more about it if you have ideas, how you'd actually at the patient level try to quantitate that in a manner uh, that you could incorporate it into the model. The other sorts of things, though, again, I'm sure people are wondering about it, that, uh, you know, has bled, for instance, uh, there are many risk factors for bleeding that has bled doesn't, that any multivariate model doesn't take into account. Fall risk, frailty, uh, other medications. 
And, you know, we talked to some of our docs, and they'd have very good reasons why, even though the tool recommended uh, anticoagulant therapy, they say, Mark, my patient's got myeloblood dysplastic syndrome. Platelet count's been 25,000 for the last five years. He's fallen six times in the last eight months. And, and, and so you still need to be a doctor, just like when you take a guideline. You know, it's a guideline, and you work from there. Um, one of my biggest concerns about all of this kind of decision support is that people would blindly use it and not engage their brains. We've actually not found that to be the case, but... Some of the variables, um, particularly those with, uh, such as cost and convenience, are heightened for low-income populations, um, uh, rural populations. And I'm wondering whether or not there's been any studies done for the population-level utilities, so that would not be an individual patient yeah. decision-making, but rather can be incorporated into the, um, the um, end outcome variable. Yeah. We have a lot of very rural people for whom, and, and also who are poor, so either the novel agents that they cannot afford or heightened inconvenience for, for coming in, transportation. Yeah. There, there was a nice article published about four years, now, maybe three years ago. I, I'm forgetting who the author was, but uh, there were large tables that were presented looking at the novel agents and, and looking exactly at that, um, that uh, the cost, out-of-pocket cost given any given patient. Uh, of course, as you know, the problem, even if you have insurance, is that the co-pays are different for every plan. So uh, it's something that's highly variable, and, and the physicians frequently, we don't even understand and know that. So there has been some work done trying to uh, kind of compress results of cost-effectiveness analyses into these massive tables. Uh, you know, again, looking at the, uh, the f at that time, the three novel agents that were on the market and, and out-of-pocket cost as a consideration to help people look on this, you know, two-dimensional matrix, what, what drugs, and I think it was by both cost on one axis and stroke risk on the other by CHADS. But, I mean, a follow-up would be that for yeah. an area like this, one of the variables might be distance from... Um, sure. Where right. Yeah, yeah. And that might weigh more in favor in that setting of a novel agent where you didn't have to check an INR. But, sort of a related question. Yeah. So I think all these um, patient-related variables and values are the most important, important and interesting in, in many ways. But um, I, I would think in some of these smaller practices that have 15 or 20 patients, the availability of a really robust system for right. managing anticoagulation may not be there. And that would be a huge right. risk, which I don't think is... Yeah. So, so one of the you're absolutely right. And so, again, one of the things we've learned in the study, I, I haven't told you a whole lot about the results of the cluster randomized trial, but um, a lot of docs in our more peripheral practices, basically, when we went out and met with them, looked at us and said, "Gosh, I don't make those decisions. I, I'm uncomfortable making those decisions. I either whatever they did when they got discharged from the hospital, I, that must be the right thing. I do that, or I refer them to cardiology. What we're trying to do." actually trying to get funding for a study that will generate an automated ref an automated epic inbox message to docs um, if they have patients who might benefit and uh, and then to basically make a referral to this AF thromboprophylaxis service that we're trying to put together in as much an automated manner as possible and kind of getting back to the question that your colleague next to you asked about you know what does the magnitude of uh, gain mean what we're going to try to do so we don't inundate our pharmacists with 800 patients all at once 
is basically stratify patients by first a group who has, for instance, two qualities or more gained were they to be on optimal thromboprophylaxis and kind of have a cohort of them referred out and then keep moving that bar down. So again, kind of using the gain in qualities as a, as a measure of uh, potential uh, benefit and uh, stratifying patients in that manner. But. So Mark, I want to thank you for what you've talked to us about today, but I also want to thank you for showing us, again, why EPIC can be a very powerful tool. <laughs> because we spend a lot of our time bad-mouthing EPIC and, and all of the, uh, the workload that it brings to yes. us. But it is the use of it in the way that you've shown us that shows us the value of putting the data in and having the data analyzed for our patients. Thank you for being here. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.